بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على سيدنا محمد واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد um, you know when you when you read some of the uh, works that have been written about extremism and islam and the solutions for it and so forth uh, one of the things that you you see quite often is the, uh, the solutions offered for extremism, the chapter on solutions, is basically the negation of the chapter on causes. <laughs> in other words, one of the causes is the amount of facade in society, so the solution is reduce the facade. <laughs> You're not ruling by the book of Allah, the solution is to rule by the, the book of Allah. So many of those, if you go back to your causes, just think about how to remove those causes, and inshallah that is part of the of the solution so in order to leave more time for for questions i'm going to inshallah just uh, discuss maybe one or two more points and then inshallah we'll open the floor uh, for questions inshallah i talked about the importance of spreading the the proper knowledge and its importance in eradicating uh, or solving the problem of uh, of extremism among the Muslims. In particular though, in that knowledge, uh, I guess you could emphasize the aspects of tarbiyah and strengthening Iman. In other words, obviously the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong is obviously very important for someone to recognize what's, what actions he should not be doing in particular. But also the development of the proper Iman and, and, and the, the individual where he sees the laws of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala beyond the fiqh, beyond the, just the laws and the real teachings of the Quran Sunnah about this, uh, about this, uh, this world and this life that we are living in that can give him some of the important characteristics that will keep him away from going to extremist views, inshallah. For example, developing patience within the Muslim and in making or, uh, Letting the people understand what are the importance, what is the importance of being a Muslim and having this quality of patience. What is the place of patience in Islam itself? Patience is a very important, uh, aspect of Islam. And in fact, it was one of the commands of, the, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَصْبِرْ كَمَا صَبْرَ أُولِ الْأَزْمِ مِنُ الرُّسُلِ وَلَا تَسْتَعَدِلْ لَهُمْ and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet ﷺ to have patience like those prophets of resolute purpose had patience and do not be hasty with respect to them. And one of the, one of the uh, reasons why people sometimes exhort or resort, I should say, resort to extremist activities is because they are lacking the patience and the understanding of what it means to be a patient Muslim. And a patience, as, as I'm sure you've all heard lectures about patience before, has certain aspects to it. Patience and, and with respect to keeping yourself to do the, the commands that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has required of you. And patience in the sense of keeping yourself away from those things that are forbidden for you. And patience in the sense of accepting whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed. And when we talk about patience and accepting whatever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed, what that implies 
is not to respond in a way that is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when we say patience in the face of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed, doesn't mean you just accept it and you sit and do nothing. But the patience means that if, for example, if you're harmed or oppressed or something, you're, you accept what Allah has decreed with, for, for you, and you do not respond except in a way that is approved and sanctioned by the Sharia. And this was the way of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, obviously. He fulfilled this command from Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to be patient. And Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala refers actually to all of those major prophets, you know, Musa Alayhi Salam and Ibrahim and Isa, that they had also this very important characteristic of patience. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala also describes how He made leaders, some people leaders, when they had the patience and when they had the certainty in, in what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had revealed, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them leaders among the people. So developing this characteristic, uh, which is really, as I said, part of tarbiyah or part of iman, and it goes beyond just the simple fiqh and understanding of the laws and so forth, but a full development of the human with respect to iman and his full character as a as a, as a Muslim, as a believer. <clears throat> in fact, one time, uh, one time Ibn Taymiyyah wrote in, in his work called Al-Istiqama, he said that a fitna does not occur unless one has left what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered him. And then he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala orders the truth and orders patience. And fitna occurs when someone either leaves the truth or results, fitna occurs, uh, results when someone either leaves the truth or he leaves patience, being patient. And when you get to that characteristic and you start acting and responding in a way that is not approved by the Sharia, Ibn Taymiyyah is saying this is what is one of the keys behind having, being afflicted with trials uh, in this life. Another important aspect of this kind of tarbiyah that we need to bring ourselves upon and bring the Muslim ummah upon also is having good expectations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a husn al-dhan billah and in knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for example among, included among that is knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not allow any good deed to go to waste and he did for example when, you, when we are faced with the many difficulties and the situations that many times lead people to um, uh, to extremism, we should have the confidence and the good expectations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to bring about what is good for the believers either in this life or in the hereafter. And when we act, when we do what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us to do, either in making da'wah or advising people who have gone to extreme or try to order them to do what is right or stay away from what is wrong, we know that these acts are pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He will not let them go to waste. They will be a benefit either directly in this life or at least in the hereafter. And so we always have those positive expectations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we hope for His mercy and we hope for His guidance as we turn to Him knowing that what He's doing is based on His wisdom and based on His knowledge. And obviously, removing the love of this dunya from our hearts is another aspect that we as Muslims must emphasize. 
because the Muslim Ummah, in a great extent, has become just another part of the overall uh, capitalist or consumer society. And we value the things of this dunya. We value the things of this dunya to the extent that we're not willing to give them up, even for what is something clearly better for the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and for the Muslim. To sacrifice, let's say like even make hijrah from one land to another, land where we have lots of money and wealth, and make hijrah from that land to another land. For the sake of building up the Muslims or preserving our deen and preserving our family's deen. And many times people cannot make that step because they cannot detach themselves from the things of this dunya. And I already talked, I already gave you the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in which the, the Prophet ﷺ has spoken about that al-wahan that is in our hearts. That weakness which is in our hearts by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has removed the awe and the fear from our enemies. And that wahan part of it is the hubb dunya the love of this dunya. And the hating of death. So we have to emphasize, you know, what is this dunya? What is this life here? What is it all about? What is its purpose? What is the goal behind it? And how, what should be our attitude towards this dunya? The Prophet ﷺ in different hadith, for example, he mentioned that, and we should uh, be in this dunya as if we are a stranger, someone who is just passing along while on a journey. And this is not our real home. This is not the thing that we should be looking towards as the home, as if we're going to live here forever. Our real home as believers, inshallah, will be Jannah. That is our home. That is the thing that we should be wishing we can get back to. Or get to, I should say. Although, no, get back to is not completely incorrect if you follow the... The one interpretation of that hadith about Adam being in Jannah and being taken out of Jannah. And so therefore, we as the family of Adam want to return to where... Huh? Boy, how about that? <clears throat> and it, some of these things we do not really emphasize, even in the Muslim Ummah. And we don't talk about these things that much. We don't remind each other of these aspects of the Iman. Of what it really means to be a believer. And in the, the actions of the heart. What are known as the actions of the heart. Love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And have hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And having patience. And humility and so forth. These are really the things that really make up the human being. Not his clothing. Not his wealth. But it's really it is what is in his heart. And this is the thing that really drives the person to become a real believer in every sense of the word or makes him just kind of, yani, alhamdulillah, someone who is Muslim but doesn't really have the outstanding characteristics of a believer. He cannot really sacrifice for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because his love in, for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not that strong while his love for this dunya is strong. And inshallah, these characteristics, I just mentioned three of them so far, but these characteristics, if you take them back to some of the, especially some of the uh, causes of extremism that like Luwehaq mentions in, in his book, and you see that 
these are some of the keys, inshallah, to uh, removing some of the those causes that lead people to to acts of extremism or to extremist views. For example, jealousy with respect to this dunya. And in those people who are very upset that some people have gotten the goods, the wealth of this dunya, while they do not have it. And a Muslim should not be upset with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If, for example, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed that all the Muslims have poverty and all the kuffar, United States and everything are the richest nations of the world, if this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed, then a Muslim will be happy with it. He will not be displeased as this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he will accept it. However, if someone gets wealth through haram means, through oppression, through wrongdoing, then we are not jealous about the fact that they have goods and they have wealth, but we are upset for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they are doing things that are haram. And our goal is not, we want that dunya, so we want to go and take it from them in the name of justice so we can have it, but it is the fact that they are doing things which are haram in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the thing that uh, should upset us and is permissible to obviously to upset us. Another very important aspect that I think needs to be revived within the Muslim Ummah as a whole and is very important to the solution of the problem of extremism is to revive the spirit of ordering good and eradicating evil. This has, of course, a great deal of relevance to the issue of extremism itself. But even before I get to some of the points of its relevance, we have a problem among the Muslim Ummah that many people are completely, uh, they have a distaste for any kind of idea of ordering good and eradicating evil. And of course, this is something that the Western media has done their best, you know, to try to put in the worst possible picture. They will show the, you know, they'll show the Taliban, or they'll show the mullahs in Iran, or they'll show the Mutawas in, in Saudi Arabia, and try to picture these people as the worst possible people. And if people are actually going out and telling people to do something good and stay away from something bad. Can you imagine such people? How evil <laughs> such people must be? But they will do their best. And because they know that this has an influence in society. And in the mere presence of those kind of people has an influence in society. Now I'm not going to comment on the fact that maybe there have been some excesses. That's possible. When I talk about reviving the spirit of uh, ordering good and eradicating evil. I'm talking about do, do it in the, in the proper way, of course. But the concept, the idea has to be there. That we as Muslims have to understand that it is part of Islam. It is part of Islam that we look out after our society 
and we have responsibilities, responsibilities towards one another to order good and eradicate evil. To make sure to encourage people to do what is right and when we see evil, to take the steps to remove that evil. And I've even heard some Muslims say, what is this? And people are telling people to go to Salat or, or not to kiss in public or whatever. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, La ikraha fi din. Yani let them, <laughs> let them do what they want. I've heard this argument from many people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says there's no compulsion in the religion. So you can't go up and tell someone he's supposed to pray or don't drink alcohol or something of that nature. And this verse is completely irrelevant with respect to the concept of ordering good and eradicating evil. La ikraha means you cannot force someone to change his religion and to become, for example, a Muslim. Like what the Ansar tried to do with any before in Jahiliya. If a Ansari woman did not have children for a long time, she would say that the next child she has, she would give them to the Jews. If she, if she, I mean, if she's blessed with a child, or, this, or, or might have been the case that if they're, I don't remember now exactly, that if their child and childbirth would die a lot, they would say if the next child lives, she'll give them to the Jews. One or the, the other, I don't remember. So when the Jews were forced to leave Medina, they wanted to take their kids back and say, these are our kids and they should be Muslims with us and leaving the Jews behind. And when they became, you know, like young adults, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed that first, la ikraha din, there's no compulsion, and you cannot force them to become Muslim, if they, when they grow up, and before Islam, and now then they accept the Judaism before, uh, before Islam. And in any case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, obviously there's numerous verses in the Quran, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is showing us the importance of ordering good and eradicating evil. And in fact, in one of the verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَاتَّقُوا فِتْنَةً لَا تُصِيبَنَّ الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا مِنْكُمْ خَاصَّةً وَعَلَمُوا أَنَّ اللَّهَ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And fear the affliction and trial which affects not only those of you who do wrong, and know that Allah is severe in punishment. Ibn Abbas said the meaning of this verse is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered the believers not to accept any evil in their presence without working to remove it. And if, and if they do not work to remove the evil, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, will afflict them with a fitna, a trial that does not just Include the wrongdoers among them, but all of them who fail to remove that evil. And if they do not work against the evil, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will inflict them all, uh, with evil. I mean, with the fitna. Well, also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ بَعْضُ the believing men and the believing women, they are awliya, they are protectors and close friends and helpers of one another. They order good and they eradicate evil. One of the key aspects actually of brotherhood, and it's not part of brotherhood that you see your brother doing something haram, that you see your brother doing something that may take him 
to the hellfire and you just sit there silently and watch him do it. You are not being his protector and his friend when you just sit there and let him do something that you know may take him to the hellfire. It is your obligation as his brother in the faith to do what you can to keep him away from that evil that he's doing. This is an aspect of, of brotherhood. People don't, don't understand that this is a kind of love. And this love, and in between brothers, is sometimes much more difficult than just to say, oh, you know, he's my friend, let him do what he wants. It's like your child, for example. If you're bringing up your child, if you just let your child do everything and run the household, I've seen houses like that. <laughs> and then you're not teaching him what he needs to learn so that in the future he'll be rightly guided. But if you teach him sometimes and show him that something that he's doing is wrong and not acceptable, maybe you have to spank him or something or keep him away from something he really desires and wants, you're doing that out of love for the child because you love your child, you don't want to do, you don't want your child to do something that you know is harmful for the child. Similarly, your love for your brother in Islam or your sister in Islam should be of the same nature. Because you are supposed to, in the same way that, for example, the father is a willy over his child, guardian looking after his affairs, we are supposed to be the same towards one another. So to watch your brothers and sisters do munkar, you cannot sit there in the name of friendship and say, oh, I'm not going to say anything, that's my friend, you know, I don't want to hurt his or her feelings. <laughs> Go ahead and hurt my feelings, you know. If you're going to save me from the hellfire, you can hurt my feelings as much as you want. And some brothers are very happy to do that in my particular case. <laughs> but this is part of what it means to be a Muslim. And as I said, we have to uh, we have to re revive the spirit and we have to revive uh, any, this way of thinking about our deen. Because when extremism begins to develop and these groups begin to develop, it's much easier to see the munkar and stop it when it is starting out, rather than to remain silent and watch it get big. And it can destroy all of you. All of us. The Prophet you know, you're all familiar with that hadith where the Prophet ﷺ is talking about the people on two levels of a ship. That when the people on the lower level, if they need water, they have to bother the people on the first level, right? So if they just, they decide, you know, if they just make a hole on the bottom of the ship, that will solve that problem. And if the people on the top part of the ship, if they see that and they do not stop them, what's going to happen? All of them are going to go down in the ship. That is the concept of uh, ordering good and eradicating evil, which as I said, it is an important aspect of Islam itself, and it is something that, especially in particular, with fighting against the, the ex extremists or the development and the growth of extremist groups, it is something essential that we must revive. And, 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 and re closely related to that, in a sense, also is that the role of the Muslim, of the ulama, has to be revived. 
I talked about before about the, the presence and the development of the ulama that we need, but also their role has to be revived. And that the people who are known to have real ilm, they have to be respected as the leaders of society. And when they speak, and when they give guidance, their guidance has to be listened to. Nobody is perfect, obviously. Everybody is going to make mistakes. But we would hope that the mistakes of an alim is going to be less than the mistakes of someone who doesn't have knowledge. So the scholars, when they speak and when they show us what is the correct path and what are the extremes, we should listen very closely to what the ulama are saying as they bring us back to the straight path. And as I alluded to earlier, also the ulama themselves have to come forth and fulfill this role on behalf of the of the Muslim ummah. I think uh, on that point, inshallah, I shall end and I think I've left about uh, like a half an hour for questions, inshallah. You know, those brothers who I was just talking to, they know that uh, I told them I was running out of energy. That's probably why I'm going to break early for uh, lecture, for class, for questions. But now I'll make it seem like I'm being very nice to you, know, breaking early, and taking as many as your questions as I can. <coughs> Uh, Sheikh, you mentioned both uh, monolithic and non-monolithic monolithic, uh, <laughs> something of Islam. Maybe I should can be used to, to hunt and attack Islam as Muslim. You explain how, uh, how, uh, I'm writing like that here. As uh, the non-monolithic religion opens the door to multiple valid interpretations. What is the danger of, or what is the danger of attacking Islam describing in the monolithic? If you did not address this point. Now, when I was talking about the uh, monolithic and non-monolithic uh, descriptions of, of Islam, and it, actually Islam is monolithic, and the real Islam is one Islam, the Islam of the Prophet and of the Sahaba, and that correct path. Uh, it is monolithic. However, the old, so the new orient, the new orientalists or the neo-orientalists are kind of presenting it as non-monolithic. The old orientalists present it as monolithic, but when they present it as monolithic, they, they said Islam is this and Muslims are this and these are their characteristics. The problem with their approach is that the characteristics that they gave us were false, were untrue. And they would make up stuff or, or derive, derive their own characteristics of Muslims and Islam and claim that this is Islam and Muslims. So that was the danger of their, uh, of their approach. Uh, it's not really that relevant to the question of extremism, so I didn't discuss it very much. Assalamu alaikum. What I, I gathered from your lecture is the importance of, the, of, uh, of your Islamic education and ex exercise patience in the face of adversity. Please elaborate in patience in the face of adversity and choosing correct correct time to act to defend Islam and Muslims. I think in the uh, especially in uh, in a number of different of the, of the lectures I talked about uh, patience. Uh, what I mean by patience in the in the face of adversity, and patience is not a what do you call it a um, and it is not a negative, 
component, and it is actually a positive component in the sense that you accept what is happening, but that does not mean at the same time you do not work to better your situation. So the question here continues, like when then are the Muslims going to uh, defend themselves? First of all, the issue of self-defense in a particular case, like someone is being attacked, Muslims have the right to defend themselves. You don't need jihad, you don't need an imam or something to uh, to defend yourself if, you're, if we're talking about a particular case of being attacked. But if you're talking about the Muslim as a whole, when are they going to fight and on behalf of Islam? Obviously, this has to wait. This will be when the Muslims are ready to, when the Muslims are able and willing to come out and give up their land, give up their wealth, give up their lives for the sake of this defending Islam. And in that same process, though, and they will not take these steps until they also build themselves up economically, uh, politically, and militarily. Because as we talked about some of the conditions of jihad, and you don't go out and make jihad if you know that you're going to be defeated. What's the purpose of that? And you're not seeking just to be killed, just for the sake of being killed. Jihad is to establish the law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and make it supreme above everything else. So you have to, part of the process, like when the, when the Muslims moved from, from Mecca to Medina, that was part of the process by which they were strengthening themselves and getting themselves to a level where finally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had permitted them uh, to make uh, jihad. The Western media have added a new word to the, uh, to the vague Muslim extremist category, the Salafists. What is the Salafist? Uh, where would you put the, uh, the Salafists according to the three categories you mentioned yesterday? Oh, you didn't uh, you didn't read the rest of it. <laughs> the rest of it is very important. The reader uh, or the media say that the group came from Algeria and they operate in France. Okay, so so that changes my answer <laughs> very much. So okay, I'm not sure exactly who they are. The who are they are they are referring to in this particular. Uh, in the particular media or, the, or such that is referred to in this question, because obviously there's some groups in, in Algeria in particular uh, who have some certain views which may may or may not be within the limits of the of the Sharia. And in general, though the Salafis or the Salafi Islam, what they're really talking about, what they mean by that is the same thing when they say Wahhabis or fundamentalists and so forth. And those people who are sticking to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and the way of the Prophet Muhammad and the way of the Sahaba and so forth. In other words, saying that the Islam that we need today, 